There are moments in ministry, and I've had one of them this morning, where um, when uh, I think it was Nick asked who's travelled the furthest, and I thought, yes, <laughs> got this. What's the prize? What do I get? And then just sat in the front row thinking, yeah, Melton Mowbray, that's 45 miles ish. And then Nick said, and of course Daniel, I thought, ah, oh, Daniel, Scotland, that's a bit further than Melton Mowbray. I haven't got anything, have I? I haven't won here. And my spirit sank thinking, yeah, I've been humbled by God this morning. Uh, not the first, not the first this time. Puts me in my place, and it's good every once in a while to be uh, to be put in our places. It's good every once in a while to be reminded of uh, the God that we serve is not a tame God. He cannot be boxed. He cannot be enclosed. He cannot be, in one sense, comprehended. For the moment we get a comprehension around him, he goes, guess what? I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. Don't know what it is about John's gospel. Uh, I know numerous churches in the East Midlands at the moment that are working through John's gospel. There's something. There's obviously a word and season here for some of our churches. One of the things I like about John's gospel, uh, as we read it, is there are numerous spectacular miracles, aren't there? Those moments when God goes, "Uh uh-uh, you haven't got me boxed in. You haven't contained me. I'm going to do something a bit different. So far, if you've been working your way through John, or you know John's Gospel, you'll know that Jesus has turned roughly 175 gallons of water into wine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good wine. Yep. None of this two-pound bottle stuff you get in the supermarket. <laughs> Good quality wine. He's healed a boy from a distance just by saying the words. He heals a man who had not walked for decades. Spectacular interventions. God stepping down into his creation through Jesus. The supernatural into the natural. Are we excited? The stories can be so familiar, though, that they lose their impact. When we turn to John chapter 6, as we, uh, as you started last week, and as I'm going to continue today, and as I think you will in weeks to come, we have two very familiar miracles that are simply breathtaking. Not just spectacular, they seem to be on a slightly different scale to what Jesus has done already. First, Jesus feeds thousands of people. First 15 verses of chapter 6 with only a few pieces of bread and a couple of small fish. Imagine the disciples at this moment walking around with a bit of a head of a fish, or a fin going, here we go, (laughs) enjoy. Or the tail, that's yours. But God does something spectacularly breathtaking. You explored that last week, and I'm not really going to touch on that. But as, as Spurgeon said, God can use the small things if they are placed at the, at the disposal for kingdom purposes. 
The danger is we get so familiar with these stories. We have taught them in Sunday school. We hear them time and time and time again. And they just get a little bit sanitized. They become a little bit normal. When we really think about the feeding of the 5,000, there were maybe 10 to 15,000 present by the time you count women and children. An incredible sign that shows something of the greatness and power of Jesus that lead us to trust him more. And Jesus simply takes those barley loaves and the fish and feeds the crowd. We have to resist the temptation of just going, yeah, that's all right. Not bad, is it? It's all right. It's okay. <clears throat> this is breathtaking, The sheer quantity of the provision in comparison to the insufficiency of what was offered is incredible. Just think for a moment, what could you offer God? What could he do with it? There is this sense that God is after people that will trust him. And that leads into our second miracle. The disciples are in an excellent place. They're in a really good place. They've seen this, this provision of God. Five loaves, two fish, feeding thousands. They are sky high. They are in a top place. They've seen God do something quite spectacular. Rightly so, they are riding quite high. Their confidence in Jesus. Well, nothing can stop us now. But then immediately after this miraculous feeding of the multitude, they find themselves in a split second fearing for their lives. They've gone from one extreme almost to the other. John chapter 6, I'm going to read the, the words again. Beginning at verse, probably verse 16. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. When they got into a boat and set off across the lake for further, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. But they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread, after the Lord had given thanks, once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into their boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. This miracle of Jesus walking on the water is recorded for us in three of the four Gospels. Only Luke seems to omit it. Compared to Matthew, compared to Mark, John's version is relatively condensed and brief. In John, there's no mention that Jesus is with his disciples as they get in the boat and set out. 
John also mentions it was dark. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake of Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Just a quick aside, because I think the darkness is really quite significant in John's Gospel. Darkness plays a theological role throughout the Bible, but especially so in John's Gospel. One scholar says, if light symbolises God, darkness connotes everything that is anti-God. Maybe John is saying something here in the Gospel as he talks about the darkness. Darkness is also used um, in scripture frequently, metaphorically, to mean distress, anxiety, fear, oppression, death, and all the absence of God. And in John's Gospel, darkness often indicates spiritual blindness, maybe even spiritual death. Back to John 6. As darkness begins to fall at the end of the busy day, the disciples set off. They set off yet again across the lake to their mission base in Capernaum on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, quick geography lesson, I guess roughly seven miles wide, 13 miles long, is fed in the north and exited in the south by the River Jordan. There seems to be a lot of crisscrossing the Lake of Galilee throughout the Gospels. As the disciples row to Capernaum, a strong wind picks up, resulting in a rough sea. Maybe you've been on a rough sea. Maybe you've experienced the, the high winds that we've we occasionally get here more frequently as fences are blown away or trees come down or whatever. The Sea of Galilee was known for these sudden storms occurring. Again, it's geography. Surrounded, uh, the Sea of Galilee is in a basin. Um, it's surrounded by high hills, about 600 feet below sea level. Storms came about suddenly. They were not uncommon. And the fishermen in this group, they would have experienced them before. Maybe we'll touch on that in a moment. The result of the disciples' efforts this evening is that they've only travelled three or four miles. They are tired physically. Maybe even they're tired spiritually from the events of the, the previous day. There's still a distance to go. And then into this environment, into this situation, now drops something unexpected, something out of the ordinary. As they look out over the sea, through the wind, the rain, the raging storm, they see something. They see someone out on the water. Not paddle boarding, not surfing, not windsurfing, but walking on the water. And this thing we know is Jesus. 
and is approaching them. Maybe, maybe, maybe we would expect the disciples to go, oh, you know what? It's Jesus bloke, you know, the one we've been with. Well, he's the one that can turn water into wine, isn't he? He's the one that can speak a healing word and uh, healing occurs. He's the one that can make a, a man's bones strong again. He's the one that took those fish and the bread and fed all those pounds. Of course, this is Jesus. Oh, how stupid of us. But that's not what they do. We have in John's Gospel, this person is called Jesus, but I think the disciples did not know. They did not twig. They did not associate this wispy figure out on the water as their Lord and Saviour. I think I'll put a bit of extra effort into rowing the other way. <laughs> These things are not normal. These things are not natural. And I'm not surprised that the disciples at this point are quite scared. Put yourself in their shoes. I think their reaction is understandable. They are not expecting Jesus to walk out to them and meet them. They're not expecting anyone to walk on the water and meet them, because people do not walk on the water. They get into boats and they row. And as they row against the wind in the midst of this storm, on the seas, in the darkness, and without Jesus, they conclude, and I think I would have concluded the same, that a ghost, a spirit, is approaching them. And they are frankly scared. They are frightened. Interesting, they're not too worried about the storm that's raging around them. But they're worried about this figure, this apparition that they see walking towards them on the water. They are hard fishermen. They had faced down storms before on the Sea of Galilee. But this and say something that probably isn't appropriate for church. This is um, this is really, really, really scary. They are afraid of the situation. They don't know what it is that is approaching them. One commentator again just simply says they are simply afraid of the maker of the storm, not of the storm itself. And I think John is painting a really good picture at this point. It looks dark. It looks hopeless. Everything is against the disciples at this moment. But more than this hopeless situation, John also intends to turn the story for us to see the one who has power over the darkness, the sea and the storm, is the one when Jesus speaks that they know, sorry, is the oak, is it is, uh, I mean, uh, uh, mm. <laughs> the interpretation for a moment, or put my teeth in. More than this hopeless situation, John also intends for us to see the one who has the power over the darkness, the sea, and the storm. In the midst of this storm, we are to see Jesus. But it's only when Jesus speaks do the disciples go, 
conqueror. It's him. It's him. Let me just take us off track again for a moment, if I may. Some at this point would like to suggest to us that actually Jesus wasn't walking on the water. The disciples hadn't gone too far from the shore and that Jesus himself was just walking along the beach or was walking in on the shallows or walking in the shallows or knew where particular rocks were that he could walk across. I've even heard a theory that there were some ice blocks that Jesus could walk on in the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> Who knows? I should laugh. People trying to explain it away. Interestingly, in John's Gospel, the words that he uses clearly indicate that Jesus was walking on top of the water. <clears throat> walking on top of the water. Matthew and Mark's version also help us in clearing up this ambiguity or some of the other suggested arguments as to what's going on here. Matthew says in chapter 14, the boat was a long way from land. And Mark goes further by saying, the boat was out on the sea, and that he came walking on the sea. A clear indication that the shore was a long way away. I think John really wants his readers to understand quite simply that Jesus was walking on the water. That's all. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He reveals himself to them. Not with, it's me, Jesus, but simply, it is I. Significant words, I think. I think they are meant to resemble the Hebrew phrase, I am. And you know where we get that phrase and why it's so significant. Anyone who knows the story of Moses and his encounter with God in the burning bush will know those words. When Moses asks God who he is and who is sending him, God replies, I am. God's personal name, if you like. He reveals it to Moses. This is your God. I am sending you. And I am simply indicates more than that Jesus is present. It indicates the presence of God. In the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this storm, in the raging wind and rain, God presences himself with his people and says, I am with you. God is present with his people in the storm. Jesus does more than identify himself, though, simply as the water walker. Maybe take a moment over Sunday lunch whilst you're waiting for your carrots to cook or whatever. Look at the other I am statements that John uses in his gospel. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the door, chapter 10. The good shepherd, chapter 10. The resurrection and the life, chapter 11. The words, the truth and the life. And the true vine, chapter 15. 
Jesus is clearly saying something about who he is to his disciples in this moment. And then there comes this simple, do not be afraid. Do not be scared. Jesus steps into their situation and circumstances and calms their fears, brings them peace. <coughs> the disciples see, are seeing that this is not a ghost. It's not a spirit. This is someone else who is on their side. Someone who's not against them, but for them. It is I. Do not be afraid. We really need to grab the significance of what Jesus says at this point. I am, says Jesus. And he was. And he is. And he is today. Yesterday, today. As they take Jesus into the boat, another miracle then seems to take place because their journey seems to come to a very quick end. Some commentators again have just said that uh, it wasn't necessarily instantaneous, may have been, but actually they were so, um, uh, so infused and encouraged by getting Jesus into the boat that however many hours later it took to row to the shore, just passed by in an instant because they were happy to have Jesus with them. And then our passage concludes today. And as we read 22 to 24, we read that the clouds who have been provoked by the feeding miracle the day before are now looking and in search of Jesus. Realising that he or his disciples are no longer around, they set out in boats across the lake towards Capernaum themselves. At the end of our passage last week, the crowds were looking to forcibly make Jesus king, weren't they? And we are forced to reflect and think through who is this Jesus for ourselves? Whatever we make of him, Whatever our understanding of him is, he is so far greater than we can possibly understand or imagine. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is the, the King that steps into our storms of life and is able to calm them immediately. He is the great I Am. And I wonder how we treat Jesus. I wonder how we treat Jesus, particularly when storms come our way. Do we worship him, knowing who he is and what he deserves? Or do we allow the storms of life to triumph? Do we domesticate our wild God? When we come to faith, we know that life is never going to be easy. Scripture tells us, tells us to pick our cross up daily and to walk with Jesus. We know there's going to be hurdles. We know there's going to be information that we receive that we don't want to receive. 
Life happens. But Jesus is present with us in those moments. And, and, and I speak this week knowing that one of my wife's fancies has just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's a wonderful Christian lady, serves the church left, right, and center. Life happens. How do we respond in those moments? Let me just finish with a couple of things. <coughs> First thing is to say that there will be times in our life when the storms will hit us. There will be moments when our faith will be tested, where our faith will be put under strain. But I think this passage reminds us that in those moments and at those times, God is present. I pick those words deliberately. God is present. Not that God might be present. Not that God will be present if you're feeling okay. God is present with us in the midst of those storms. And then secondly, we are reminded that in the midst of the storms, and during these testing times, it's naturally easy to rely on our own strength, rest in our own skills and, and abilities. But is it not better to have Jesus in the boat with us? Many, many years ago, scared me to say this, 30 something years ago, my friend Andy, we are best friends from school days. He was head boy, he was a, a Christian. Uh, I came to faith and uh, uh, his family took me under their, their wing, as it were. And he used to like going sailing. And he had a little two-man laser dinghy. Anyone a sailor? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, I need to watch what I say now to make sure <laughs> it is all accurate. Okay. <laughs> he had this little two-man laser dinghy. I don't know what the right word is. Located, birthed, moored, whatever, at uh, a reservoir near Taunton, where we both live. And after church, we would go and sail. Well, I'd sit on the boat, to be honest, as Andy would say. And one day we went, and it was the wildest storm I've ever seen on the lake. Well, lake, reservoir, pond. And Andy says, let's go. And I looked out, and no one else was on the water. No windsurfers. Everyone was huddled in the sailor's heart going, Oh good. Maybe I'm a bit of a sheep. I followed Andy. I donned my wetsuit, put my life jacket on, and we ripped the boat and we pushed it into the shore, into the water. We sailed. We sailed for about four seconds. <laughs> and as we went out, the wind caught us. My job, my job was the ballast. I was the one that had to hang out over the side with a rope to try and balance the boat. Andy would steer. And as we caught the wind, we went like the clappers for four seconds. 
And he's there going, yes! And they're going, no! <laughs> and as the wind catches, our sail is slowly doing more and more of this. I'm doing more and more of this, thinking I'm not really sure I should be seeing underneath the boat. <laughs> and then suddenly, a wave hit us. The wave landed on the sail and we were capsized. By this point, we were the other side of the reservoir. I had ropes around my legs, and he's still there going, yes, nutter. <laughs> he's still my best friend. <laughs> and at that moment, we heard a voice. You boys all right? It was Andy's dad who was on the rescue boat. And he saw that Andy was ripping up. And he and his mate went, oh, it's no our duty to go on the rescue boat. And he said, as soon as I saw you catch the wind, I said, follow that boat. It took us an hour to get rescued. The mask was buckled and dented and uh, all sorts of things. But that moment we heard those voices, are you boys all right? I knew we were safe. I knew in the midst of the storm, on the opposite side of the reservoir, we were safe. We were in the best place we could be. <coughs> I knew that when we got back to the clubhouse, there would be all the experienced sailors going. We knew. But my point is this. In the midst of our storms, in the midst of the trials, Jesus is with us in those moments. And it's better that he's there with us than without. And I don't know. I don't know where you need Jesus to step into your life at the moment. I don't know where you need Jesus. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know if you are if you've just received some not good news. Um, don't know whether or not you are waiting for an appointment. I don't know whether or not um, family have no issues or problems or whatever. I don't know what it is that you are facing, but I do know it's better to have Jesus in our boat than not. Don't know what the church is going to be facing. You've got a new ministry starting, a new minister starting to bring in a new phase of ministry. Bethany Jesus is in this boat as you start that. And I'd like to finish with simply a prayer. I don't know what it is that you're facing, what you have faced, what you'll be facing this week. But if you haven't done it already, or if you are just assuming, taking for granted, that Jesus is there with you. Yes, he is. But actually, there's power in saying to him, I need your help in this moment. I need you to be with me at this time. So I wonder, would you close your eyes for me? Not going to do anything weird or wacky. It's just so you can focus. And I'd just like you to think, 
Where do you need Jesus? Where do you need Jesus in your life at this moment? And have you acknowledged that he is there with you already? And maybe actually, if you just take a moment, take a moment to say thank Jesus that you're in the boat. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us always, by your spirit. In the good times, the bad times, the hard times, the sad times. And Lord, I just pray and ask that we wouldn't rest on our own ability or our own strength. But Lord, when the storms of life come, we would quickly turn to you and acknowledge that you are there with us And that you, Lord Jesus, would give us everything that we need. Just keep moving forward. Step by step. And Lord, I just pray for this church. I pray, Father, that as Daniel takes up the reins, as he becomes the minister here, that you would be in this boat with this whole congregation through good times, sad times, and even the bad times. <coughs> those moments of disagreement, those moments of trial, you would be in this boat. This is your boat. So be with us, we pray, Lord Jesus. And may we know your presence in your name.